welcome back to the Four Pearls Almanac. I'm your host, Andy, and today we're talking about food and why food sovereignty is so important by looking at a project called the Decolonization Diet, overseen by Dr. Martin Reinhardt from the Center for Native American Studies at Northern Michigan University, and was supported by the USFS and Cedar Tree Institute. The Decolonizing Diet Project is an exploratory study of the relationship between people and indigenous foods of the Great Lakes region. Very few studies have ever been conducted on the subject matter, and studies that examine the physical, cultural, and legal dimensions are practically non-existent. This research explored not just how to eat as people on the landscape ate in the past, but it looked to see how to integrate this past with the present and to see how a diet framed in native berries, leeks, wild game, whitefish, maple syrup, wild rice, and much, much more changed the quality of living for its participants. This was an exciting and inspiring conversation, and it's one I think you guys will enjoy. Marty, thanks so much for joining us. Tell us a little bit about yourself and this decolonization diet project. Yeah, glad to be here, Andy. I'll introduce myself traditionally first. Wabanung Meshe, Kyakyak Digitakaz, Bawating Donjaba, Ajajak and Dodem, and the Shinabe, Ojibwe and Dao, Kiche Namebene, Zibing and Dading. So it's important that we introduce ourselves in a traditional way. That way we're acknowledging we're from here. You know, and I think that when people are so fond of land acknowledgements today, I think sometimes they lack a sense of what it actually means, you know, especially to the indigenous folks who are from the places that, you know, other people may be starting to recognize the indigeneity, but, you know, we've long recognized our identity goes very deep in these, in these lands. And so I think that's a, an important way to start. And what I said is uh, my name in Anishinaabemowin, our native language, and that's a hawk coming down out of the eastern sky is my traditional name when it's translated into English. And I'm from the place that we call Bawating, or place of the rapids. You know, my family comes from both sides of the border. That border really means nothing to us between the United States and Canada. Uh, our Anishinaabe Three Fires Confederacy of Ojibwe, Odawa, and Bodawatomi, you know, we've always known these uh, as our traditional homelands, this Shikeminis. Uh, this Turtle Island. And so I think that is really important uh, to remember. Uh, we, My family is Crane Clan. It's one of the three leadership clans of the Anishinaabe. And so I take my clan responsibilities uh, very seriously in making sure that I spend a lot of time thinking about these leadership issues and try to get them right, or as often as I can, you know, or we all make mistakes. And then uh, lastly, I just, you know, wanted people to know where I live. Uh, where I live is not where I was uh, from. And so I live in Kitchenamebene Zibing, a place that we now know as Marquette, Michigan, in a, uh, a colonial capacity. Uh, but for us, it's going to be uh, more known deep historically as the place of the Great Suckerfish River. And a, a place that, you know, I've really gotten to know since around 2001. And my family, a long time ago, uh, certainly has passed through here and lived here. But for me, it really began in 2001 when I came over here to work at Northern Michigan University. Awesome. Yeah, so this will be a really great pairing with a recent episode we did that was focused on beyond land acknowledgements, uh, which I think plays really intimately with this idea of food sovereignty. And even like if you're thinking further out, more peripheral, this idea of like the locavore movement or like local food or rethinking what sustainable food systems mean, like all of these things are really closely tied together. And 
I think trying to separate those things completely is doing a lot of not just doing a disservice to each of them separately, but also I think it's focused more on like making white people comfortable with the subject matter by talking about like local food without like, okay, why is it local? And let's talk about like what that really means. Yeah. If you separate that from colonization, it, it certainly does take away from the original acts of oppression, right? The original sins. And so I think when you think about colonization and slavery, you, you can't separate them. If we're going to heal, then those things are certainly part of a healing process. But we have to we have to have accountability first, yeah. You know, before the healing can begin. So, yeah, I came across your project. Uh, I think I, I don't even remember how I did actually, to be completely honest. And I just like got sucked into like I found one of your uh, slideshows that you had done. Cool. And I was just like reading through all the data that you guys pulled, and it was just really cool. And really different than I think what we see with a lot of like NGOs that are focused on this idea of like foodways and food sovereignty and that there was a real focus on meaningful experimentation. So, could you talk a little bit about like what was the impetus for this and kind of what drove you to be like, we're not just going to talk about it, we're going to like do it and we're going to do it outside of a laboratory, so to speak. Yeah. So, you know, it goes all the way back to my time working down in the Mount Pleasant area at Central Michigan University. When we worked there, uh, we began a tradition called the Anishinaabe Food Taster. And so in November, uh, as part of our Native American Month activities, the student organization there and the Native American Center, we would provide this meal uh, for the community. And it would be very reflective of the foods that we saw as uh, Native American foods. And so we brought that tradition to Northern Michigan University when we came here in 2001. Uh, eventually, it was renamed to First Nations Foodster because we have uh, folks who are not Anishinaabe as part of the community as well. And so the First Nations Food Taster has been a longstanding tradition here at Northern Michigan Universities ever since. The community uh, has come to expect this uh, great meal in November. So as we were back in the kitchen uh, working on preparing this meal in 2010, you know, the question kind of just came to me in the back of my mind, would our ancestors, if they were here with us today, would they recognize the foods that we're eating as something that they were familiar with? You know, we're, we're calling it Native American food or indigenous foods, but would they really see that as something that they were familiar with? And so, you know, I started, we started talking about that, you know, would, you know, would celery soup over wild rice, would that be something that they would recognize? You know, would fry bread be something that they would uh, indulge in? These are questions that uh, we just started asking. And so the, you know, became very, a very interesting topic as we were uh, going through the motions, preparing the meals. And then it carried on back all the way to the Center for Native American Studies and, you know, sitting around there talking with our colleagues and our students and into our classrooms. And eventually we decided, you know what? This is such an interesting topic. It's worthy of doing a project around it. And so we we could have approached it as a just like an active service learning project or something, but we decided to approach it as a research project. And I think that's like, you know, when you talk about university communities, I think that's what universities are good at, or they pretend to be good at anyway, is research. And, you know, we're not typically known as a research institution at Northern Michigan University, but we at the Center for Native American Studies wanted to, you know, really do our best job at this approach. And so we approached it as a research project. We got 
uh, institutional review board approval for it. Uh, we said it was going to be a year long uh, project and we were going to measure it, the outcomes uh, on a biological, uh, sociocultural and a legal political level. And I think that's what makes our project somewhat unique among the things that are going on in the food, indigenous food uh, movement. And it's because you can really count the actual research projects on maybe one or two hands. You know, maybe, I don't know, maybe you got to use your feet now because it's been a while since 2010, <laughs> but there's very few. Yeah. And so, you know, we, we looked around at that point in time. We said, you know, here's what they did over in British Columbia. Here's what they did out in the Dakotas. Here's what they did in Northern Ontario. And so we wanted to incorporate some of those things that these other studies had done, counting the food ingredients, looking at the frequency tables, you know, really getting down to a species level to where we we're talking about plants and animals that we know in an Anishinaabe way as uh, spirit beings, right? You know, these are spiritual beings, but in our daily lives, we often think of them as food. And so that's, we wanted to approach it in a very genuine way, uh, traditional, uh, spiritual way, but we also wanted to make sure that we did it in a scientific way. And there's no reason why we can't do both, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. It was really interesting, like what you just brought up, this idea of how you are qualifying things as indigenous foods and rethinking the relationships between us and those foods. And one thing that you make a point to in, to not include are the GMO pre-Columbian foods. Yeah. So, could you talk a little bit about why you decided to do that and maybe some of the qualifiers you tried to use to separate those kind of really, I don't want to say gray areas, but things that people get might get a little confused about as to whether or not it's quote-unquote indigenous? Yeah, so we... You know, identity and food is a really interesting area. I'm doing a presentation on that soon for another conference. But, you know, first you have to say, okay, well, what is it that makes something indigenous to a place, right? And so the food in and of itself has relationships. You know, some of these foods were here in the Great Lakes region uh, for hundreds and thousands of years before humans uh, ever interacted with them. So the food has its own identity. And then you have this identity of the indigenous peoples with the food. It's kind of like you can come at indigenous two different ways. There's the food by itself and its relationship and its own identity. And there's this people's identity with the food, the indigenous people's identity with the food. When we think of it that way, so for instance, you know, the mallard ducks. Mallard ducks were in the Great Lakes region regardless of humans being here or not. They had this relationship already established with the other plants and animals. Humans come along and we bring corn, beans, and squash with us. So corn, beans, and squash are introduced to these other plants and animals because of us as indigenous people. So we have this pre-colonial indigenous relationship that kind of focuses on those two aspects. Well, around 1600, uh, 1602 is about the earliest we know that there's a direct interaction between native and non-native people in the Great Lakes region over by Montreal. So we set our date for the decolonizing diet project at 1600. Uh, give us a couple of years of cushion. We know that it takes a bit of time for cultural diffusion to happen, for foods to uh, drift from one across one cultural boundary to another. And so we felt pretty comfortable that anything that was in the Great Lakes region prior to 1600s uh, would have been familiar to our ancestors, at least somewhat. So we made a decision to base all of our eligibility criteria on that date, 
uh, whatever was here pre-1600. And then we called them, you know, the things that were uh, native pre-colonials and then their derivatives. So things that have, you know, since the subspecies or whatever, the things that we've derived from those things. Uh, what we did not include, however, is the colonial foods uh, like pork, uh, oatmeal, you know, those things came uh, with colonists. Uh, we, even though many of us probably enjoy ham or, you know, a good bowl of oatmeal, we did not include those as part of our decolonizing diet project. Uh, we thought it was important to separate those out. Yeah. Uh, we also did not include anything that has been genetically modified, whether it's a native species or a colonial species. We think of those as frankenfoods. You know, they've altered them. You know, if nature alters it, then it's adapting to the local circumstances. It's something that is happening in a good way, in a way that I think it's, to us in Anishinaabe perspectives, it's a much more respectful relationship with Mother Earth and her spiritual beings that exist here. To force something on another being and to change it so dramatically, it just seems very disrespectful. And the jury's still out on a lot of the uh, health effects of doing that. And in fact, we know from some of the laboratory studies, you know, that it's having ill effects. Uh, uh, even in the laboratory, before they feed it to humans, uh, we know that when they feed it to rats, the rats are having uh, unfortunate circumstances. And, and some of the foods have even been developed in labs as poison. As poison. I mean, think about that. Yeah. You know, the Monsanto corn that people eat, you know, it's, it was, had to go through the poison, you know, the, yeah. uh, whatever that laboratory is that they, you know, they uh, clear poisons. Up. So, you know, it's, it's, it's really important that we think about the food we eat in relationship to their eligibility as indigenous foods or not. I want to talk a little bit more specifically about the study itself. So what I thought was really, I think the most impressive, and uh, I know you went through it personally, is the fact that you had these different levels of indigenous food consumption. Mm -hmm. And I'm assuming you volunteered yourself to be one of the folks doing 100% of an indigenous diet, which I thought was like, awesome. Like, it's super cool. And not only was the project itself like a really good reflection of your dedication to what you're doing, but the results that you reported were also like insane like in terms of like the health benefits considering like yeah. you weren't like counting calories or any of these, you know, going low carb or any of these like fad things that people say like, this is how you lose weight. So could you talk a little bit about this and maybe some of the psychological effects this diet had on you? Yeah. So, you know, going back to the research participants and we, we like to use the term participants versus subjects because it, you know, it's much more respectful again. It's uh, subject seems so cold and impersonal. Sure. Uh, so we chose to use participants, and I decided that I was going to be uh, try to be the best example, you know, lead by example, right? I think we're seeing that right now with Ukraine, you know, and the president in Ukraine leading by example. Uh, what a brave uh, individual! Anyway, but I think that's uh, what I tried to to do with the decolonizing diet project. If I was going to ask other people to do something that uh, significantly altered their lives you know, to eat indigenous foods for one year. I wanted to be uh, the best example I could be, uh, lead by example. So I chose to be 100%. And it was a heck of a commitment. You know, I mean, it literally altered our cupboard space, our refrigerator space, our freezer space. 
a very huge commitment of time uh, for going out and accessing and processing and and then preparing and eating and journaling and and everything else that came with it, you know, the health checks and everything. We required people to be committed at a 25 to 100% level on a daily basis. So a lot of folks were between 25 and 99%. Some folks just didn't think they had the time or the uh, resources available. They didn't have the knowledge. And so they chose a lower amount. We also asked them to, if they chose whatever level they chose to eat at besides 100%, to eat higher than their percentage when and if they could. That way, if there was ever a time when they couldn't maintain their, you know, whatever commitment level, then they would fall back to their commitment level. So it was kind of like, you know, commit at a 25%, eat at a 50%. So that way, if you have to fall back, you're not falling below the minimum. Yeah, you're not going to a graduation party and losing all of your gains. Right? Yeah. So, I mean, that it, things happen. You know, life goes on. Yeah. So you try to eat at a higher level. And we also asked them to get regular health checks. We asked them to get an annual physical before and after and then quarterly health checks during and to work with their their doctors, whoever their health advisors were, to increase their level of physical activity. Uh, we know that the American diet and the American average American uh, amount of physical activity per day is probably rather low compared to that of the indigenous people who lived here uh, prior to colonization. And so we wanted to increase both of those. The things that we were able to uh, report at the end of the decolonizing diet project year uh, were really cool. Uh, one is that everyone who participated in the project lost weight, a significant amount of weight loss. Uh, we also had, on an individual level, folks who were able to decrease their amount of bad cholesterol, whether that was LDL or triglycerides. And uh, some folks were able to also uh, lower their blood glucose level and their blood pressure. So you think about this. Three of the primary killers of indigenous people for years has been obesity, heart disease, and diabetes. We hit all three of them with our decolonizing diet project. So we're very happy with the results, you know, just simply altering the way people eat and encouraging them to do a little more exercise. And, you know, we have something that, you know, it's going to be very helpful for folks if they truly embrace it and bring it into their, their families and their communities. How did this diet affect like the, the psychology of folks? Did you notice people were more uh, aware of where their food was coming from the seasonality of some of those foods? Yeah. Like what, what were some of the, the feedback you got that wasn't as easily measurable as like weight and blood pressure? Yeah. So we, we kind of put that under the sociocultural category and, you know, folks, when they were interacting with the foods, sometimes they were going out and learning new things. You know, people who had never gardened before were gardening, people who had never gathered, you know, gone out and uh, looked for berries were doing that. Some people hunted and fished for the first time in their lives. But everybody learned how to be better shoppers. I mean, it's amazing when you really truly look at the labels in these stores, uh, what the labels tell you or don't tell you. And so we became very good at that. In some ways, we increased our hypersensitivity and awareness to the world around us in an indigenous food way. And so I think that the lessons that people learned, the community that was created around the idea of indigenous foods and health, 
uh, it really was so positive. We have folks now who participated in the decolonizing diet project who have become lifelong friends. That's awesome. And, you know, when we've lost, we've lost one, you know, when one of our uh, DDPers passed on, it was, a, you know, it was a very, it was a time when we felt a great loss. You know, we became family. Yeah. And so you can imagine the uh, psychosocial implications of being able to say that, you know, that we are a DDP family, you know, that we bonded uh, in a very strong way, you know, over the uh, idea of eating together and helping each other. Uh, become healthier people. Yeah. And that included both native and non-native. So think about the implications of that. Yeah. Native and non-native people working together uh, on a project that actually creates this kind of family unit. You know, that's healing, man. That that heals like generations. Hey there, it's Andy from the Corporal's Almanac. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to our podcast. As you can probably tell, This content involves extensive research and editing to release weekly episodes. If you think this content is valuable for the future that we inherit, please consider financially supporting this project by visiting poorproles.com and clicking on the Patreon, Venmo, Ko-Fi, or PayPal tabs. Every dollar helps offset our costs for hosting the podcast content and helps offset hundreds of hours of work put towards this project monthly. Thank you for supporting us by sharing, liking, and donating to this project. Together, we can build a better future. Did you see any statistical differences for Indigenous versus non-Indigenous people with, like, how the diet impacted them? Uh, I'm just kind of curious, like, you know, we always talk about this idea of, like, our bodies are designed for X, Y, Z. And if having spent 10,000 years eating these foods allowed Indigenous people to benefit more from them, did you see anything like that or is it just, you know, basically across the spectrum pretty equal? So on a biological level, we've seen uh, relatively uh, similar outcomes for both native and non-native people. You know, and that's not saying that non-native people and native people don't have some particular issues, right? That being said, genetically, we're, we're not really that different. Sure. You know, we might have certain alleles in our genes that are different based on our ancestry, but ultimately we're, we're, we're both human. Yeah. And so the, the real question is what kind of diet were these humans eating before the DDP? And I, I would venture to say that both the native and non-native people were eating this very American diet, Midwestern American diet. Yeah. So it, it didn't surprise me that both native and non-native people benefited positively together on a biological level. Obviously, they were eating a lot healthier uh, than the average American diet. Yeah. On a sociocultural level, I think is where we've seen the real difference. Uh, Native people identified deep, deeply and historically and spiritually to these foods. This is the foods of their ancestors. Uh, The non-Native people didn't have that deep of a relationship, right? Their, Their relationship with it goes back only so far. And so I think the identity question, again, came into impact that relationship. And I think the amount of pride that people took as Native people that, yes, these are our foods, you know, this is uh, what we, our bodies in a spiritual way want these, right? We, we crave it. And so I think there was like this uh, difference. There was a big difference for Native and non-Native people and how we approached it. But I think the non-Native people are also very respectful. You know, they, they are also looking for rootedness, for grounding, for belonging. Yeah. And I think that that relationship that they 
forged through the decolonizing diet project was a very healthy one, although it's different for them than it is for native people. But I think it can be healthy for both for different reasons. Yeah. And then, of course, on a legal and political level, there's also a difference of rights. You know, indigenous people, if they belong to tribes, if they're tribal citizens, in other words, they may have aboriginal and treaty rights that are different from non-native people. Non-native people also have treaty rights. You know, just the fact that we have a state of Michigan is, you know, and that Michigan allows its citizens to go out and hunt fish and gather in its way under its laws. That's based on treaty. You know, so we have treaty rights on both sides. Uh, the rights, there's a difference of rights. And so it's where those rights come from. Again, our rights come from our indigenous ancestors. Non-native rights may come from British common law and this kind of nuanced American democracy, right? So I think it can, again, it can be a healthy cross-cultural relationship and amalgamation of indigenous and non-indigenous cultures doing really kind of the best of both worlds. Yeah, it's an interesting idea because I think we see in this whole conversation, talking big picture about like decolonization is, you know, the emphasis I think like on the internet is like, okay, we have to work to help indigenous sovereignty exist and so on and so forth. And those are all really important and necessary conversations. But then when it's like, okay, what about the white people? Like, where do they fit into this? Like, we can't go back to Europe or, you know, something like that. So like, where, how do we make amends? And that's the part I think people just really struggle with. So this is like a really interesting way to address that and to, to allow folks to find some place in respects to the, the indigenous people around them and in many ways together, but also separate. It, it, it's really a beautiful idea. I always tell people the decolonizing diet project was not about sending white people back to Europe or wherever non-indigenous people are from, right? I, I, I can't uh, do that. I can't just simply cut out things from my life that I have a place in my life now that are, are part of our identity here. You, you can never undo decolonization entirely. It has forever changed this land. So the act of decolonizing is trying to become healthier in the land that you're in. As uh, Dr. Robin Wall Kimmer, Anishinaabe ethnobotanist would suggest, love your mother wherever you love her, wherever you find her, right? So a mother earth, we, wherever we live, we love her here in a local way. You know, the, uh, when we're talking about music, for instance, I love Pink Floyd. And I'm never going to say I can't listen to Pink Floyd because they're from, you know, England or Great Britain. You know what I'm saying? So <laughs> yeah. it's like, why would, why would we do that? And so the, the act of decolonizing is giving us an opportunity to rethink and to recenter. It doesn't necessarily mean that I don't eat Chinese food anymore, right? I think Chinese food can be very healthy, very good. And when you mix it with indigenous food like wild rice, my gosh. You know, sometimes it's really tasty and healthy. And it's, it's not saying that we have to get rid of everything non-indigenous. Yeah. But what it is saying is give us a break. We've been colonized for over 500 years. Yeah. You know, let us let us take a minute, take a breather and think about, you know, how did our ancestors have it? What was so cool about the way they lived and try to renegotiate, renavigate through this, what happened as a process of colonization. So much was disenfranch we were disenfranchised from. 
just give us an opportunity to think this through and to think about what would be the healthiest way to move forward if we had had that opportunity back then. Yeah. Maybe, you know, maybe we choose to keep things like Pink Floyd, but maybe we get rid of Kid Rock, you know, (laughs) Uh, maybe there's things that we keep and things we get rid of for whatever reason. Uh, But those those we have to give ourselves that opportunity, that space to renegotiate and recenter our identities. So I think that's what decolonizing is really about. You know, the healthiest way that we can eat as human beings is locally and indigenously. Yeah. So why would we not want to do that? I mean, if that is truly the definition of healthy eating for not just ourselves, but the world around us, why would we not want to do that? So, you know, wherever we go, if we happen to find ourselves going from here over to Australia, well, maybe we take some of our food with us when we go there and we share it, but we certainly don't try to displace it. Yeah. Right. That makes a lot of sense. And I think that's the disrespect in the relationship that happened as a part of colonization, the the oppression of food systems. Yeah. And I think that's why when we're saying decolonizing, what we're really saying is, you know, let's let's recenter this and rethink it so that we can approach this in a much more healthy way for all of us. Yeah, I, I would fully agree with that. I think it's really easy, especially like on, on the Internet, to go down these like really dark rabbit holes of like culture wars around like us versus them mm-hmm. that isn't really engaged in an attempt to make things better, but to be more right. And that's why I like talking with folks doing stuff like this because it's like i'm i'm working to show uh, a path forward as opposed to being fixated on like what's the perfect thing that we could do that's not real realistic but is something that i can say on paper and like well if we can't have this perfect thing then everything else is terrible well it's important to provide solutions or work towards those solutions i'm a i'm a mixed ancestry anishinaabe ojibwe i have relatives from Ireland and France, you know, I may not have grown up as Irish or French. You know, I grew up as a mixed ancestry Anishinaabe Ojibwe person from, you know, this side of the border between U.S. and Canada. But that doesn't mean that I hate everybody else. I can't hate myself just because I carry the genes of people from Ireland and France. Uh, What I do expect is that people as individuals that they recognize that on a collective level, right? Not as individuals. Andy, I don't suspect that you made a conscious decision to colonize the indigenous world here. Yeah, no. (laughs) But on a collective level, certainly the country that you have citizenship in did, right? And so on a collective level, that country still exists. It's still a colonial country. And as individuals, we have to uh, come to grips with that. I have ancestors who are colonists. I have ancestors who are indigenous. So I have this tie to both. And to me, I I can't imagine that if I did have ancestors who were colonists and, you know, that they were part of that process, that I would support what they did just because they were my ancestors. Uh, I think it's important that we right the wrongs, that we address those original sins and that we you know, make this world a better place for everybody. And if it's within our own families and our nations, well, when we have to heal them, yeah, you know, the, the healing happens for both the oppressor and the oppressed. You can't just heal the people who have been hurt because oppressors don't know that they're also hurting themselves just by literally being oppressors. Right. Yeah. Well said. 
So we've we've started talking about this bigger picture conversation of how uh, decolonization plays into food and thinking about paths forward. But I do want to ask a little bit more about the the specific diet itself that you were uh, eating mm-hmm. as part of this process. Uh, I was looking at some of the charts in terms of like the foods that were being consumed on average, and it looks like I believe the the most the highest quantity food consumed was maple sugar, yeah. which is mm-hmm. uh, really interesting for a. a couple of different reasons so like obviously in the great lakes region being a cold place that's wet like sugar maples are everywhere and you're going to have a lot of maple syrup or maple sugar if you granulate it but also like it, it's a it's a sweetener like it you would think like it's terrible to have a diet that's like majority white sugar but despite it being a majority different sugar is still really healthy uh so I, i'm kind of curious about your thoughts about that well, I, I'm a mapleaholic, man. I like my sweets, and that's you know that's the number one. Of course, you know we have other things that are sweet too—the berries, uh, even uh, inulin powder that comes from Jerusalem artichokes, right? So, I mean, there's a lot of ways you can sweeten your foods, but absolutely, maple is one of those ones that's a real cultural icon here. You know, we are uh, woods people in this area, and like the Keweenaw Bay Indian community, they were the largest producer of maple products in the world for a long time, you know, until, of course, they were disenfranchised from, you know, their traditional subsistence patterns. So I think they're uh, people like my friend Jerry Jondro, you know, they're making their way back to that, to uh, revitalizing those traditions in their community. You know, we have a range. I always say that we have this range of tastes. You know, in the American diet, the American diet is made up of like every other culture in the world, right? And you can find everything. You go to New York City, you can find every kind of food in the world there. And so the American diet is like the the spectrum of foods that you can eat is this broad. And I'm only holding my hands here because you can see it on the camera. Otherwise, it'd be way out there, right? Uh, But, you know, the Anishinaabe traditional diet, it's not that broad a spectrum. You know, in fact, it's probably like, like that. But when you really get into it, it's this deep, right? And so you you get this lot, this spectrum that only goes so broad for Anishinaabe traditional foods. But then when you start really looking at what did our people do with it, it's that deep. And, you know, most of the American diet, I think we probably get about that deep into it, you know, when you really think about it, how people explore food that well. So while we have a wide spectrum, we don't, uh, and I'm assuming you're talking about this idea of like uh, how to utilize it and like the different ways that it can be utilized. Yeah. Like, you know, uh, again, Jerry Jondro, my friend, he just sent back some blueberry uh, maple vinegar with my daughter when she went and visited with him the other day. And of course, you know, try uh, that with some uh, wild rice casserole, right? Like a stir fry casserole type thing. I don't even know what you call it. But, you know, just it's the experimentation of food, you know, trying different things together, uh, trying these things and then, you know, always coming up with these new tastes and and utilizing, truly utilizing what exists in the world around you. You know, the intimate relationship that we foster with the plants and animals around us makes us more respectful of them. But in turn, they love us with their tastes, right? They love us with their nutrition. They, they really give of themselves literally, right, their lives to uh, support us. And some of those 
taste you just don't find anywhere else. Yeah. Ground cherry, ground cherry syrup. Have you ever had ground cherry syrup from Gwynn, Michigan? I have not. No. You know, oh my <laughs> gosh, it's so, it's amazing. And I don't know, maybe it tastes different from ground cherry syrup from, I don't know, Mount Pleasant. You know, so, I mean, we have to really taste our world. Yeah. Uh, again, Robin Wall Kimmerer says every day, every day, we should at least have one thing from the world around us. We should consume it to keep that connection so intimate with our place. Yeah. It was just really interesting, this idea of like the utility of something as simple as like maple products. So, you think, all right, I make maple syrup, can have pancakes. That's basically what most people do. That's, you know, waffles, pancakes, and that's about it. Yeah. But like making it almost like I think it was about 35% of the total calories consumed is just like, it speaks to that ability to be creative with it, which is like super awesome. Oh, yeah. And one of the other things that stood out to me when I was looking through the data you guys presented is that despite having access to something like bison, which you can buy on the shelf fairly mm -hmm. easily, it wasn't a really big focus of people's diets. And I really thought it would be because it's something that's fairly accessible. People know how to cook beef. So, the idea of like, okay, well, it's bison. It's basically like cooks the same way. It's a little bit leaner, but I, I know how to make a, a burger with no bun and put it with some rice or whatever it might be. Sure. I'm interested a little bit about, I'm assuming that part of this was providing materials and how to cook with the various ingredients. But uh, was there a focus on like, hey, don't just go replace white rice with local rices, local wild rices. Don't just replace your burgers with, you know, bison or any of those types of things. Yeah. So when we started out the beginning of the year, we, we had to teach people how to identify indigenous foods, of course. Right. And so most people were going to the local supermarkets and that's the way they were accessing their foods. And so there was a lot of that. There was, it was like, okay, well, what can I do instead of this? And so we would say, well, why don't you try this? But then they didn't know how to cook it. So people would get bison and they would, you know, they would overcook it and then it'd be very dry because there's not a whole lot of fat content. It's very lean. And so you have to, you know, do a little bit of experimentation, you know, trial and error. Uh, if there's one thing we're good at as humans, it's making mistakes <laughs> and learning from our mistakes, right? Yeah. So I think that's the, it's part of the cooking process, learning how to cook these indigenous things yet again, because a lot of them are, you know, foreign. The native is foreign to a lot of people. So I think there is that. Uh, the other thing is that we held uh, these potlucks once or twice a month, we would hold potlucks and we would ask the participants to bring in something that was indigenous. And we always ask them to bring it in 100% indigenous so that we could have 100% indigenous meal together. And when we first started out the year, sometimes people would make mistakes. We'd have to, of course, before I ate it and the other 100% are on the diet ate it, we always asked, you know, what in the, what's in your meal? And they would go through and they would list it out. And then we'd say, okay, well, you did pretty good on that, but this is not indigenous, right? And when you mix this in, that was not indigenous. So th there were some things we could eat, some things we couldn't. But uh, people learned through that. By the end of the year, though, Andy, people were really good at that. I would even say by the six-month mark, you know, we were not having people bring in non-indigenous foods anymore. And so they got really good at that. And they also got really good at making it taste good. You know, they were experimenting. They were finding ways instead of just the bland, you know, here's a bowl of pepitas with, you know, nothing on them. You know, they were really learning how to create, unlock these like flavors and using different spices, indigenous spices, and, you know, really doing some of the things that I think were 
uh, might be considered gourmet. You know, by the end of the year, we had us uh, at the end of the DDP, we had this uh, indigenous foods cook-off. And there were, uh, we had three groups uh, that were given five hours with a table full of indigenous ingredients, mystery ingredients. And we, they were challenged to create a side dish, a main dish, and a dessert. And uh, my gosh, it was so cool, the things that they came up with, right? Duck egg drop. Ooh, that does sound pretty good. <laughs> indigenous corn breaded whitefish bites with uh, maple vinegar sauce. I mean, just really cool things that you would not find uh, anywhere except like a real specialty restaurant, you know, maybe once in your life. And so we had this really cool thing happen. You know, these people who were not real good cooks as far as indigenous foods at the beginning of the year, now cooking these very advanced meals that you see people like award-winning chef. What's the, uh, anyway, the big chef. Sous chef. The sous chef. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Oh, the James Um, Beard Award. James Beard. I mean, the guy's won two James Beard Awards. And, you know, this is, they were cooking stuff kind of like what he's cooking now, right? And so, I mean, that was really cool because I can tell you, I'm not a chef. I have no training in that, but I was cooking some good stuff, right? And things when we went and visited his restaurant, it reminded me of where we kind of were at at the end of the DDP year. You know, people were really making that kind of advance. So, you know, that made me feel pretty good. Uh, The other thing that we did is we had, people share their recipes and their methods and in this online forum, which we eventually collaborated on and edited this uh, decolonizing diet project cookbook, uh, which is now available to share with the world. In fact, we've sold almost 2000 copies. That's awesome. Yeah. I was going to ask about that book. It's really cool. And I, I was reading a little bit about it and you were just talking about kind of where it came from, which is a really interesting, like a very communicative process. And like, it ties into a lot of these bigger picture narratives that you're talking about. It works really well. And I think this raises this question of like, where does all of this go next in terms of like, is this something that can really be sustainable on a a larger scale Mm -hmm. and kind of, you know, obviously there's a lot that underwrites that in terms of commodification of food and land access and uh, all these parts of decolonization that we've been talking about. But it sounds like from the way you're talking, you're pretty optimistic about the future of this type of food movement. Yeah, I really am. When you come from 2010 to 2022 and you see the changes that have happened, you know, back then there was like, like I said, a handful of these kind of projects going on and the indigenous foods movement in general was very uh, young. Today, it's like a, you know, a tidal wave going across the world. Indigenous foods is the trend. You know, I mean, it's where people want to be. And that can be uh, both a a good and a bad thing, though. You know, because on the one hand, uh, it's doing a lot to revitalize these uh, traditional food systems. And we're getting a lot of support uh, from grants, you know, and interest from individuals, you know, people buying books and wanting presentations and such. So that's a really good thing. But we have to be careful, too. You know, we don't want uh, indigenous foods to become the next Taco Bell. (laughs) I mean, we don't want people uh, appropriating it and, you know, calling it something that it's not. You know, so we want to maintain the integrity of, you know, the idea. Uh, We want to be respectful to the the core. You know, we we don't want to be sending our indigenous food products 10,000 miles away and, you know, inflicting the same harm on Mother Earth that, 
we're seeing happening with other foods, right? So we don't want to be part of the problem. We want to be part of the solution. And I think, so it has to come with an ethic. You know, it has to come with a, uh, an ethic where we uh, honor and respect Mother Earth. And we say, if we're going to have indigenous foods, then we're going to have it in a decolonizing way. You know, the, the worst thing that can happen is you have a whole bunch of people who have no relationship with these foods whatsoever, other than going and sitting in a fast food restaurant and consuming them on the other side of the planet. Yeah. So, Marty, for folks that have enjoyed this conversation, where can they find the book? They want to see more about your studies, or I know you teach some classes on similar topics. If you could uh, kind of tell people where they could find that interesting information. Yeah. So, uh, we now offer a, a course at Northern Michigan University called uh, NAS 230, Tooth Hurdy, right? Pun intended. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's called Decolonizing with Indigenous Foods. And so we'll be offering that every summer uh, in the uh, months of July and August. So that's one way they can uh, learn more about that. Take the class. It's an online class and they can do it from the wherever they live. And the other uh, way is to, of course, get the Decolonizing Diet Project cookbook. And you can find that either at the Northern Michigan University Bookstore or the Center for Native American Studies on campus. Or you can uh, look up ReinhardtAssociates.net. And uh, I sell those uh, personally myself at our website. You can also join the Facebook site. Our Facebook site has over 6,000 members. It's probably the largest indigenous foods uh, Facebook group out there. So just, you know, Google uh, Decolonizing Diet Project Facebook and, you know, sign up. Awesome. The, the only time I've ever told somebody they can't be part of it is when they start posting, like, you know, advertisements for selling vacuum cleaners or something. As long as they're respectful <laughs> of the site, you know, and then maintain the integrity and respect, it's, uh, we're good to go. Awesome. Uh, there's also a chapter out there, if, you know, if folks are more interested in the academic uh, research uh, components of it. Uh, indigenous, indigenous Universalities and Peculiarities is the name of the text. And I have a chapter in there called Spirit Food. And so it kind of chronicles the decolonizing diet project with the uh, outcomes and such. Awesome. Marty, this has been great. Thanks so much for coming on. Hey, no problem, Andy. Miigwech. Thank you.